If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com slash support. Let's just back up and say sometimes the United States invades other countries. The Iraq war is, was that. But it is also the case that much of the exertion of power today is more supple quieter or doesn't make headlines as much. It, it sort of passes under the radar. And you can see that as a grand achievement. At least we're not having these bloody wars for territory anymore. And those wars were genuinely awful and bloody and, and far, far, far too many people died in them. So that we're seeing fewer of those seems like a real achievement. But you might also worry that when war just kind of slips quietly into the background as a sort of constant low drip state of policing, that violence and domination just become normalized and, and we're kind of losing the ability to react politically and to object to those things. In this episode, we're speaking with Daniel Imervar, a historian and the Burgeon Evans professor in the humanities at Northwestern University. His most recent book, which we will explore today, is How to Hide an Empire. I'd been teaching U.S. history for a while in California, I was working as a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley, and I was also teaching at a prison in San Quentin Prison. And I was doing the normal thing that U.S. historians do. I was teaching the class in the normal way and you know, the Jacksonian era, we get all the way up to the Civil War, Progressive Era, all that kind of stuff. And you know, I was just trying not to screw it up. But then in the middle of all this, I took a research trip to Manila in the Philippines, and I had known of course, because I'm a historian, that the Philippines had been a colony of the United States for about 50 years. But I think there's a difference between reading the lyrics and hearing the music 
And that was the kind of fact that I knew in a vague sense, but didn't really fully appreciate the significance of until I arrived in Manila and just looked around and saw, oh, yeah, this place has clearly been part of the United States and has an ongoing relationship. And I'm not sure that the way I'm teaching U.S. history is really getting that. So I came back with my mind scrambled and I realized that what I wanted to be able to do was to tell a history of the United States that took seriously the fact that the United States is a territorial empire and it has a number of overseas territories and they're actually a really important part of its history. To start off with the basics and something that people may find more relatable, you address and unpack this logo map of the United States, which is that symbolic map of the so-called shape of the U.S. as a country. What issues should we take with this reductive map and what are some of the complexities of what it hides and leaves out? Sure. So let's say what the logo map is. I think if you ask most people to map the country in their minds, what they will draw in their mind's eye is that familiar shape, the contiguous blob. We all know exactly what it looks like. And there's a political scientist, Benedict Anderson, who called that map the logo map on the understanding that if the United States had a logo, that that might not be a bad one. And he's wrong. He's right about that. But the thing is that those borders that you can so easily call to mind only correspond to the borders of the United States for three years of its history. There's three years where that's the right map of the country. It's wrong from the start because, as you know, if you took a history class, the United States started out smaller and it was only through a series of wars and purchases and indigenous dispossessions that it, it got the shape that we're all familiar with. But the part that we don't always talk about is that three years after it acquired that shape in 1857, it just kept going. And it, uh, the United States took first uninhabited islands, then Alaska, which is absolutely enormous. And by the end of the 19th century, it had a formidable overseas empire with you know heavily populated. And, and those parts of the country so often get written out of its history and of our understandings of it to the point where the normal reaction that you get, or I get as a historian when I say, yes, I'm a US historian, and I look at places like Guam and Puerto Rico, is a furrowed brow. So what do you think has been the significance of this shape, particularly if it only really lasted for three years as a true representation? Like, why has the symbol not changed or at least become more, quote unquote, inclusive in a sense, if the U.S. is so hell-bent on exerting and showing the world its global domination and power? I think the shape is not only inaccurate, but it's also misleading beyond the geographical inaccuracy. And what it misleads about is the character of the country. If that's the only part of the United States you're looking at, you're looking at a selectively cropped family photo, and you're looking at places that are largely states, right? And so then the the proposition is the United States is a republic. Here's here's the land. And and all these places, all these places that, that you're seeing on the logo map are ruled under the same law. And and this is, you know, a shining republic and not not an empire. There are some exceptions. Washington, DC isn't a state, and as a result, residents there have different kinds of voting rights. And then there are the Indian reservations that if you mash them all together, cover a land area about as large as Idaho. But it's kind of easy for people to tune that stuff out. And it gets really easy when your map doesn't have Puerto Rico on it, doesn't have uh, the Philippines on it, if we're talking about a historical map, doesn't have Hawaii on it. And once you start adding those places in, you start asking questions about not just the shape of the United States, but the character of it too. 
Well, the subject of plastics and synthetic materials is often examined through the lens of public health and environmentalism. And what really struck me and became apparent from your work is how important it is to understand them through the lens of power. So how would you weave in the topic of lab-made synthetic materials into the history of the U.S. empire, particularly in terms of how it changed geopolitics and contributed to making the empire's reliance on colonies and their raw materials obsolete? Once you start asking about the United States as an empire or seeing it as an empire, you start asking different kinds of questions like, why does its shape change over the course of the 20th century? How does it shuffle one kind of imperial expansion, you know, taking colonies as much as the British had done in favor of another one. Right now, the United States controls 750 military bases outside of its borders. These aren't large bits of land, but they they carpet the planet. And I wanted to ask about that transition. And, you know, it's easy not to ask about that if all you're looking at is the logo map. So I started researching and, and thinking about reasons. And one one thing that surprised me was the role of plastics and synthetic materials in that, because I'd always seen plastics as a scourge. And yes, they're convenient, but they lead to this sort of everything is disposable and everything damages the environment lifestyle that, that we're all sort of trapped in. But one thing that plastics did is they slaked the thirst for colonies. Plastics and other synthetics have done an enormous job replacing the need or the perceived need for quote unquote great powers to seize overseas territories because they have raw materials or they can grow or mine raw materials in them that'll be useful to industrial processes. One thing that the United States got really good at doing was basically replacing all colonial products with synthetic ones. So swapping technology in for territory and replacing colonies with chemistry. Mm. And then besides changing their material reliances, the U.S. and its military have also developed other technologies that changed the geopolitics of movement. So what are some of these, as you call them, empire-killing technologies that made movement easier without direct territorial control? And how might an awareness of these technologies change our perception of what counts as imperialism or domination that don't appear as dramatic and headlines-making as an outright territorial invasion, but could be understood as being on par with it in terms of helping to accomplish and establish similar power discrepancies and subjugation. So I should clarify that I, I talk in the book about empire-killing technologies, and what I'm talking about there is not the end of domination. We, we haven't got there yet, but rather the waning of a particular kind of domination, of formal colonialism in a sort of classic, you know, pith hat in the jungle kind of way. And the United States, I think, was really at the forefront in replacing colonial domination as a way of exerting power in the world overseas with something that I call pointillist empire. So all those little dots, the military bases, small islands, often an uninhabited islands. The United States controls all these specks all over the planet. And that makes it look makes it have a very different map than the British Empire had in the 19th century. And you know, on the one hand, you could just sort of say, well, great, we're, you know, making great strides and, and it's so good that most of the uh, land of the planet is not under formal empire anymore. But, you know, I think those, it would be a mistake to round all those dots down to zero, even if they don't control much land. They mean a lot for people who live in the shadow of the U.S. military bases or places where the United States stores its weapons or, or tests them. So one thing I got really interested in the book is not just trying to explain 
how various technologies enabled that shift to pointillist empire, but you know, trying to account for what it means to live in a on a planet where the primary form of territorial domination is dots, not large colonies. Yeah, and so I guess when we read news headlines about a country invading another, as we speak, one example would be Russia invading Ukraine. Rightfully, there are a lot of outraged reactions to just coming across news like that. So what do you think it means that the ways that the U.S. has been continually expanding its power has been a lot more discreet and invisibilized? And because it doesn't exert power and expand power in that same explicit way, oftentimes the U.S. is portrayed even as a savior. Yeah, I just wonder how you think we might process this sort of hypocrisy. There were two reactions that I saw in people around me to um, the invasion of Ukraine. One was, oh my gosh, this is horrifying and, and, and scary. And people with Ukrainian connections were understandably really feeling it. So, so there was that kind of moral outrage, and rightly so. But there was another reaction feathered in, which is, I thought this, didn't, this kind of thing didn't usually happen anymore. Land wars in, in Europe, it felt like a throwback. Now, that's an exaggeration, and there are, you know, it's it's not the only land war that we've seen in the in the twenty first century. But, but the anachronistic feeling that we got as we sort of imagined, you know, tanks rolling across borders, it felt like it was the nineteen forties. I think that's a reflection of how the United States has remade what power looks like. And you're right, a lot of the forms of U.S. I mean, it's not. Let's just back up and say sometimes the United States invades other countries. The Iraq War is was that, but. It is also the case that much of the exertion of power today is more supple, quieter, or doesn't make headlines as much. It, it sort of passes under the radar. And you can see that as a grand achievement. At least we're not having these bloody wars for territory anymore. And those wars were genuinely awful and bloody and, and far, far, far too many people died in them. So that we're seeing fewer of those seems like a real achievement. But you might also worry that when war just kind of slips quietly into the background as a sort of constant low drip state of policing, that violence and domination just become normalized and, and we're kind of losing the ability to react politically and to object to those things. In light of all of this, you write, no longer would seizing large areas or zones be necessary to run a long distance transportation network. Mere dots on the map, sometimes little more than airfields in jungle clearings, would suffice. And so just like plastic and other synthetics, these new technologies help to make colonies obsolete, end quote. Perhaps all of this is a combination of happenstance and strategy, and maybe there's no clear answer, or maybe there is. But I do wonder whether you think the U.S. empire and those leading it realized that relying on controlling colonies in order to maintain power was sort of a weakness and source of instability, speaking to the fact that the U.S. and its allies won a war and gave up territory, meaning that a lot of these technological innovations to change the form of imperialism were made with specific intentions to help the empire move away from needing colonies altogether. Absolutely. So a lot of those quote-unquote, empire-killing technologies really came out of the 1940s. It's a moment when aviation, which allows disparate spaces to be connected without having a territorial link between them, when wireless communication, when synthetics all combine to 
give territory a different kind of political meaning and to make it feel less essential to those in power. And that's partly a reaction to circumstances, particularly the circumstances of World War II, but it's also a reaction to a growing sense that empire is a difficult proposition uh, in the 20th century because of a great anti-colonial revolt among people of the global south. It's not just that the United States is a nicer kind of world power, it's that the United States catapulted to the forefront of the of planetary power during an anti-imperial revolt, a, a worldwide planetary anti-imperial revolt that was successful, that really changed the map. And I think a lot of, you can see a lot of the United States' accommodations as as a, a response to that and a realization that that it's actually quite difficult to hold colonies when people are armed and, and you know, forming forming armies and marching in the streets. And so, as we mentioned earlier, people tend to have more outraged responses to headlines like seeing a country outrightly invade another. So we might recognize that colonial invasion could possibly spark more cohesive and larger resistance movements compared to more chronic and systematized and embedded ways to exercise power. Does that sound accurate to you? Yeah, there, there's a book that came out recently by this guy named Sam Moyne called Humane, where Moyne, who's a figure on the left, kind of takes seriously a lot of the claims that the that military planners have been making. You know, and they say, look, war just looks different now. We do it by drones. There's a lot of surveillance. We tend not to hit the wrong targets very often. It is much more precise. We we aim at particular people and and we tend to hit them. And you know, we we're not we don't have a lot of boots on the grounds. And that means that we're operating with a scalpel rather than a bone saw. And so one response on the left is to say, yeah, right. And just to point to all of the moments when, you know, airstrikes have hit weddings and and, and that's a real thing. But what Moyne does is, is to say, yeah, it's actually kind of accurate that military power has grown more precise and more accurate. And that that's the problem because what it, it does is it it makes war kind of okay in most people's eyes. And so, you know, it's a similar kind of thing with arguments about policing. One argument is, oh, what we need is police reform. So, you know, fewer chokeholds, a little more community policing. And another argument is, I don't know that that's just probably going to entrench police power even more. If the if if you are a radical who believes that the fundamental problem is the police, then things that will make the police sort of a little less objectionable in most people's eyes might might itself be a problem. I I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I've I read Moyne's book. I'm I'm interested in it, and I, and I'm I'm just not sure where I come down on it. But I I do take the argument quite seriously because I think it's a powerful one. Mm. So as you've pointed out, Winston Churchill announced in 1943 in a speech at Harvard, "The empires of the future are empires of the mind." End quote. And relatedly, a powerful and perhaps provocative phrase that you mention in your book is language is a virus, where you note that the norm in history has been linguistic difference, not sameness. I would love for you to introduce the concept of imperial standardization and what that looks like in the world today in its various forms, as well as why this universality, which typically might be seen as beneficial tools of convenience and efficiency, ought to be looked at with more of a critical lens, especially when it comes to something like linguistic standardization and how that influences the ways we think and relate to each other and the world. Yeah. I should clarify that that phrase, language is a virus, is not mine. I was 
cribbing from the performance artist Laurie Anderson, who has a wonderful song of that title. But yeah, I so the the book is really interested in the materialities of power. What does it mean to control territory? What kinds of things can states do when they have control of the schools, et cetera? And I got really interested, perhaps even a little a little too interested, in standardization as a form of world power and the ability to remake foreign places so that they, from the perspective of the imperialists, feel less foreign, feel more domestic. And you know, that's that's been something we've seen a lot of in the last 50, 70 years. And one very particular form of it is is the rise of English. It, I, I didn't realize this until I started working on the book, but English hasn't just been making a slow rise. It's, it's made actually a fairly recent rapid rise. It is now more dominant as a language than any other language has ever been in the history of languages. It's not that most people speak it as a first language. That's not true. Mandarin is more spoken as a first language, but more people speak English as a second language. So it is just the kind of universal currency uh, or the the universal adapter of, 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 of language. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that it used to require conquering a colony to do, to, you know, reset the language of that place. And even then it was kind of touch and go. But for reasons that we can talk about if you want, the United States has been really good at getting the world on English. And you know, you can have two reactions to that, right? It used to be a utopian dream that we could all speak the same language. And you know, you just think how much misunderstandings can be prevented if people can speak in the same tongue. On the other hand, it's hard not to see power as a huge part of this, right? It's not like we're all speaking Esperanto, although many people in the middle of the 20th century desperately wanted that. It, it really is what Churchill said. It's an empire of the mind or it's an empire. And the fact that it's English means that all sort of gazes are a little bit tilted toward the United States. And conversely, the United States has a much harder time understanding foreign places because the reaction of people in the United States have had to this is they stopped learning other languages and they started expecting that everyone would address them in English. Mm. And also related to the standardization of language also comes the standardization of knowledge as well, which is apparent through educational systems around the world. I'd be curious what you've thought through in terms of how standardizing what constitutes as education around the world and what what constitutes as formal education and knowledge that is to be legitimized versus others that go unrecognized or under undervalued or get sidelined. Yeah, just what sorts of impact do you think this has had in terms of the U.S. empires and communities being able to reclaim their power? Well, I think with all questions of standardization, it, it cuts two ways, right? It, it, it is nice in some abstract way to have people on the same page and conversant in the same techniques. And it's you know kind of amazing that we have a truly global scientific community where there's a kind of understanding of what counts as scientific practice, and that can be done in many countries, and people can talk to each other, and they can you know, research vaccines and that, that sort of thing. So I don't want to diminish what an incredible and extraordinary achievement global standardization has been in so many ways. I, I, in the book, I go on this jag about the standardization of the screw thread, uh, which is such a humble bit of technology, but it it is awesome and like an incredible engineering achievement that screws are within one or two systems kind of interchangeable globally. And and that we we got everyone on the same, you know, screw thread angle or, or you know, uh, there's still some argument about metric versus imperial, but that's it. But, you know, you point to one of the dangers of standardization, which is especially in areas of culture and knowledge and language, everyone being on the same page, quote unquote, 
can mean for some people, they're just playing constant home games and other people are playing away games and have even lost the capacity to be in touch with, you know, their own roots, their own past. I feel it particularly as a historian. So I'm a historian of the United States and, you know, in a kind of balanced world, I would know a lot about the history of the United States, but then when I would travel to Italy, people would know as much as or as little about US history as I would know about Italian history. But we do not live in that world at all. The, not just the form of US knowledge, but the content of it is known worldwide to the point where like people are following NBA basketball games all over the world. And, and that's just not reciprocated, right? People in the United States basically don't follow soccer until recently, which is, which is a worldwide sport. Uh, and, and instead, you know, have this other thing that they call football in defiance of what everyone else in the world calls football. And they just expect the world to catch up. So I think there's both a kind of narcissism to, you know, knowledge standardization. And then on the receiving end of it, it can feel really violent. I know some of the people I talk, I quote in the book, talk about how much they felt that they've been cut off from their own languages, cultures, thought worlds and history by the kind of expectation that everyone do things the company way, which is the U.S. way. Right. I appreciate these really nuanced insights. And this is speaking in big picture terms, but I've been thinking about how the more explicit exertion of power through establishing colonies to feed the material needs of the empire already changed the norms of how a lot of people relate to the more-than-human world. As in, the land became seen as this site of extraction and exploitation, seen as a quote-unquote resource, rather than the foundations of kinship and community. And then, of course, the transition to industries of lab-made synthetics to divorce from a need for those raw materials, or maybe at the surface, seeming like a divorce from a need for extracting from the land, just added another layer of disconnection because it attempts to bypass our entanglement and interdependence. So I wonder what you've thought through in terms of how the U.S. empire, with its planetary-wide presence and the processes of globalization, standardization, and cultural homogenization that it's led have influenced and remade our collective relations to our planetary body, which thrives on diversity and communities being really in tune with the diverse languages and also limitations of our lands. Well, I think it's an ironic story because you can tell it the way you just did, which is that you know, we used to all be living locally, thinking locally, having a diversity of experiences and having deep connections to our environments, whether they're cultural or, or physical. And then, you know, we just see the kind of upwelling or upswelling of, of one kind of monoculture that does to our experiences what monocrop agriculture does to, does to a landscape and, you know, just turns everything into genetically engineered wheat acre and acre uh, upon acre of it. But some of that kind of liberation from nature that the United States has been a part of, although certainly not the only part of, I think has been kind of amazing. I mean, it, the, the world where we collectively depended on raw materials in a direct physical way and then, you know, that, that was a world that created a scavenger hunt for powerful people to seize distant mines and, and you know, places where you could grow rubber. And it led to an enormous amount of violence. So, you know, I want to take seriously that something politically interesting happened um, when the United States debuted a lot of 
technologies that that separated it from that kind of direct dependence on the land because that also I think weaned it off of the sort of bloody colonial wars that had you know really defined human history for the past couple centuries. Mm. I think I would question whether it's sort of an illusion of a divorce from being reliant on the land though. So for example, even technologies like solar and wind power, they still increase our dependencies on industrial scale mining that's often taking place in quote-unquote developing countries in very invisibilized manners too. So that's also another form of exerting power through extraction that doesn't come from the sort of outright taking over of a territory. It's more so exercised through things like corporate monopolization. And yeah, even still, it's persisting that sort of extractive dynamic. So I just question whether it's just been another veil to our reliance on the land in order to live and survive and meet our needs. Yeah, it's, I mean, I I don't mean to suggest that this is all a happy story of scientific victories. And I think the biggest jag in the course of history is clearly going to be climate change, or it already is. It seems that the, a lot of the synthetic processes that the United States debuted were petroleum-based. So the, the one raw material that it found itself still using quite a lot of and, and kind of having some sort of geopolitical dependence on was oil, which we we think of as a form of energy and it it is that. But we don't always contemplate how much petroleum is also the precursor for all the plastics that we use, right? They are also, they don't have to be, but, but they are by and large um, petroleum-based. And so now we are experiencing in in all ways, you know, the world that plastic made, right? Or the world that oil made, both in terms of what happens when you burn the stuff, which is that you make the planet uninhabitable. And then what happens when you transform the stuff into a material environment, which is that you create trash that doesn't go away. So yeah, I mean, the the story is full of uncomfortable and, and frankly, terrifying ironies all the way through. Right. And there are still resource wars and proxy wars or conflicts stemming from those things, even if at the surface, it doesn't seem like the US empire is necessarily directly involved. Yeah, just wondering about all of these conflicts centering on raw materials and resources like minerals or fossil fuels as well, and the power dynamics that are involved in all of these things. I, I might I might push back on that a little bit. I mean, as a historian, I'm fully aware of how awful the kind of old school resource wars can be. And now we are, you know, obviously cobalt and, and other form other things that we get from mines are still really important to smartphones, et cetera. But it does seem like the we don't see as much violent conflict, international conflict over resources. I mean, Russia, Ukraine is a th- is feels like a, a major throwback in that way. And and I think that's worth taking seriously. That doesn't mean that the process of resource extraction is a happy one on the labor side, that it does involve a lot of daily quotidian violence, because it really does. But it doesn't seem to involve cross-border invasions anymore, and, and, and it really used to. Yeah. And then I wonder if instead of territorial invasions, it would be taking shape more so through more systemic ways of dispossession. For example, like local and indigenous communities, you know, being displaced from their lands for the same end goals of being able to take control over or be able to extract resources from those places. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely the case that mining 
or any kind of use of the the dead landscape, either the f- fossilized fuels or or things that you get from mines and quarries. That that's just been a absolutely brutal process from the get-go. So, and it remains one today. You're absolutely right about that. So, um, both in terms of what it does to the local environment, also what it does to the larger climate we now know, and then the effect it has on anyone who lives near those places, either because they're in danger of having their land dispossessed, they're in danger of the kind of slow violence of working on those sites, or they're in danger of having their rivers wrecked and, and, and their mountains destroyed. Well, as you've highlighted, a lot of citizens of the United States and those who learn U.S. history are unaware of seeing the U.S. as an empire today and are unaware of a lot of the history and present-day reality of the greater United States beyond the borders of the collection of states in that logo map to its territories and military bases around the globe. I wonder if you you think that there have been intentional efforts to hide the empire, so to say? And if so, what purpose does that serve? And then what could come about as a result of establishing a greater understanding of this truer reality and picture? Well, it's always been the case that the U.S. government has soft-pedaled, at the very least, its its overseas holdings, You know, including not counting people from the territories in the census, denying them the full protection of the Constitution, something that, that continues to this day, not putting them on maps. When it comes to the pointillist empire, the military bases, we we literally don't know where all the bases are because understandably, but kind of annoyingly, a lot of them are secret. So when I say that the United States has 750 bases or so outside of the outside of its contiguous borders, that's just based on some fairly aggressive reporting, much of it by a guy named David Vine, to to just count one by one where the bases are because the United States won't won't tell you, and so that's that's a way in which it's hidden. And what what would it mean if the the overseas parts of the United States were less hidden? I mean, a few things. First, I think we'd have a more accurate and, and frankly interesting story to tell about U.S. history. And my book tries to explain what that story would be. There might be some policy ideas that present themselves once you really see the extent of of the United States basing system. You start to ask questions about: Is this at all a good idea? And I'm a, not the only one who would strongly support a dismantling, effectively, of the of the basing system. You might also ask questions about the five inhabited territories where millions of people still live, and they should have binding status referenda that the Congress should respect. But I think most importantly, you would realize that the United States is not just a country among other countries. It's a place that is impinged on its neighbors in all kinds of ways, many of them quite material. Something that's really obvious when you actually look at a map of all the places over which the country claims jurisdiction. And you know, I think it, it's common for people in the country to just see themselves as having a home that's, you know, or a, a place they live that's either exceptionally great or whatever, but but not really getting that that the United States isn't just a normal country. It is a highly abnormal country and a lot of global politics turns around that fact. Right. Well, you've dug into a lot of information that generally has been sidelined, at least in terms of mainstream discourses on the United States and U.S. history. So I'm curious, what was the most surprising or shocking thing that you've come across and learned in regards to the U.S. empire, either in the past or its present day reality? So I think the thing that surprised me the most was was this. I was interested in ways in which the imperial history has shaped the country, and not just that it shaped what's happened in overseas places, but it's actually shaped the the history of the whole of the whole. And one thing that I found 
was that the name of the country shifted a little bit as a result of its dash toward empire in the late 19th century when the United States publicly claimed a number of overseas territories like the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and did so, you know, really transparently. Like that was headline news. It had been the case. So the name of the country is the United States of America. And the people of the country had been long called Americans. But it had often been the case when speaking officially to refer to the country by the nickname of the United States or the Union or the Republic. In fact, all the patriotic songs, all the kind of national anthems, they don't refer to America. They refer to the country by other ways, often as Colombia. And the reason is that I think a lot of people understood that the Americas was a larger place, and it included South America and Central America and, and other parts of North America. But it was in in reaction to claiming all those territories that you start to see the shift because phrases like the United States Republican Union no longer described political aspirations for a country that included the Philippines, right? Like a lot of people on the mainland were thinking, the Philippines is not going to be a state. This is not a union. This country is not a union of states. And part of the reason for the shift to America as the nickname for the country has a lot to do with a desire to sort of verbally get around the fact that this country was no longer a republic, a union, or a, a collection of states. Wow, I wasn't aware of that um, and appreciate this knowledge. As we're coming to a close here, what else do you feel called to share that I didn't get to ask you about? And what are some of the major takeaways that you would ultimately like our listeners to walk away with? I think the takeaway is is that, you know, there's this idea that post-colonial theorists have had and have been harping on for, for a while, which is that the places that seem peripheral are often where the action happens. And then it really helps to look toward the quote unquote edges. And this is a book that, that tries to do that, tries to take seriously places that seem to slip from the consciousness of many mainlanders, you know, basing sites, uh, overseas territories, turn out to be really important. And wars and major uh, presidential elections and major events hinge on them. So I think that's the, for me, that's the sort of takeaway. It's it's a different way of looking at the country and a different way of understanding who belongs and, and what places are part of its history. What has been an impactful book that you've read or a publication that you follow? I just read recently, and it blew my mind, the most recent collection of short stories by George Saunders, Liberation Day. I'm a huge George Saunders fan, and I've, I've been reading him all of his stuff. But what really strikes me about him as an author is not just how clearly talented and, and funny he is, but but a real sense of empathy and and a desire to put himself and put the reader in someone else's headspace. And all of the stories are sort of games about that, about about learning to care when it's easy not to care. So that those stories have kind of resonated for me, not just as well-told stories, not just working on an aesthetic level, but working on an ethical one as well. 
what's been a personal motto, mantra, or practice that you engage with to stay grounded? Air toward curiosity and kindness. And finally, what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? You know, my students. Uh, I teach at Northwestern, and you know, my job is half research, half teaching. So a lot of it is just me at home in my office and pulling books off the shelves and, and reading them and, and, and thinking thoughts. And then I get to go into the classroom and uh, you know argue it out with all these really bright, excited students. And, and it feels great. It feels like a, the gas tank is being refilled each time. So yeah, that's something that inspires me. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today on the show and helping to shine a light on what too often gets missed or glossed over when talking about the so-called United States and its history. For now, though, what are some final words of wisdom that you'd like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? Oh my gosh, I'm the least wise person that I know, and I fear that if I even suggested something, I'd ruin everyone's life. I mean, it's here's this. Sorry, not to go on about this, but I'm actually... I am actually anti-wisdom in the in the following sense that, you know, we all take our lumps and learn our lessons and we all kick ourselves about, oh man, I really should have known this. And then you think about it and you're like, everyone was telling me that, you know, like I got told that a million times and I didn't know it. And it's it's just a way of remembering that the stuff that we call wisdom isn't really a thing that you can tell someone. It, it has to come through a relationship, right? It has to come through an actual connection and it has to come through some shared reference to live experience. You know, we can fill books with wisdom and we do, and they are the most tedious books that we have, or, you know, our words of wisdom, um, because they're they're un- they're disconnected from from real life, right? So so not only do I would I describe myself as unwise, but but also, you know, I I don't think words of wisdom fly very far. <laughs> Maybe that just goes back to troubling universality and standardization. Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about all this stuff. Thank you so much. This conversation was made possible through the direct support of our listeners like you. To receive my personal reflections on these conversations, get access to our bonus live podcasts and gatherings, and support our show to continue, join us on Patreon today at greendreamer.com support. As a small independent show, we also greatly appreciate your five-star reviews and whenever you get the chance to share your favorite episodes. Our song feature today is Lullaby by Ruby Madeer. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll catch you soon in the next episode.